You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Frances Steed Sellers, a senior writer here at the Washington Post. Today, we're going to take another step towards explaining America by looking at some of the issues roiling higher education here. And I'm delighted to welcome Professor Lee Bollinger, who just stepped down as president of Columbia University after almost two decades in that position. President Emeritus Bollinger, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you very much, Francis. We're delighted to have you, and I want to jump right in, plunge into one of the contentious issues out there, and that is the controversies surrounding affirmative action. And maybe we can start by going back those two decades to your own uh, involvement in 2003 in Grutter versus Bollinger. Um, can you outline that case for me and then tell us how the court's recent decisions mark a change of action? So the case that I was involved uh, in as president of the University of Michigan uh, was decided in 2003 in favor of higher education being able to take race into account for purposes of diversity and educational interests of all students. Uh, so that was a landmark decision and the first time that a clear majority of the court uh, affirmed uh, the right of universities to do that. The origins of affirmative action go back to the civil rights era and Brown versus Board of Education in particular, the effort of higher education to be part of the, really the solution, the effort to try to deal with racial injustice. That's where affirmative action began in the 1970s. So my case really followed two or three decades of higher education doing this, taking uh, you know, its role in this effort. And now, uh, as we know, a majority of the Supreme Court has reversed that uh, and set in motion uh, a very different course for America. Let me ask you about one of the justices who spoke at the time in 2003, saying that 25 years, um, in 25 years' time, she believed this was Justice Sandra Day O'Connor that racial preferences right. would no longer be necessary. Was she right in talking about a timeline? What has been achieved, and what are we losing now by this change in approach? Yeah, so I think way too much weight is. <laughs> put on that little statement uh, of Sandra Day O'Connor in the Grutter case. You're right, she said, and you know, we're prepared to allow universities to take race into account for these very important educational and social benefits. But we hope in 25 years, this uh, may longer be necessary. Well, that's a, in a sense, a kind of um, a dream of a colorblind society, a society in which there really is no uh, difference. And, and in the way people are treated, the way the society uh, deals with race. Uh, and of course, that has not really uh, happened. That is, it will take generations for us. It has taken generations for us to overcome the centuries of enslavement and Jim Crow laws and really invidious discrimination that uh, continues to this day. So that sort of 25 year time frame was, uh, you know, highly optimistic. Uh, it never should be invoked as a 25 year sunset clause for affirmative action. A majority of the Supreme Court uh, now uh, in the Harvard and North Carolina cases did emphasize this uh, 
statement of Sandra Day O'Connor, I think that was a mistake. So I'm talking to you very much as a law professor now, but you're also a, a university president, first of Michigan and now of Columbia. I'd love you to talk a little bit about the personal way in which you've seen the impact of affirmative action rulings in the past 20 years, the impact of Greta versus Bollinger. Yeah. Well, I think the impact of affirmative action, again, going back to the middle of the 1970s, has been tremendous for America. It's a real source of pride uh, that the United States has recognized its history, uh, recognized the need to uh, take steps to overcome that history, to make it a fair society. I mean, we know that most uh, urban centers in the United States are still segregated by race and public schooling, not by official laws, but by the practices of public policies and housing and employment and, and other forms of injustice in the society. So the effort of universities to try to address this, along with the business world, the media world, the, every sector of the society, that has been a noble effort, really initiated by Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. When I started um, law school in 1968, um, there were no African-Americans, just one or two uh, in my class, and that was true all across uh, the country. Uh, now we uh, you know, have this wonderful history of many African-Americans uh, graduating from law schools, going on to very distinguished careers as judges, as lawyers, um, as legislators. So we can follow that, that same path in thinking about business, uh, about other parts of the society. So affirmative action has been a, in higher education, has been a critical element of achieving racial justice and a kind of understanding across racial and ethnic lines uh, that education can bring. So it's a real tragedy, I think, that uh, we're now on a different course. So help me understand the legal reasoning a little bit more here. Um, in this most recent case, um, the Supreme Court, Court decided that student body diversity was not a so-called compelling interest. Describe what they meant by that, why that is so key, right. and why we're not arguing about this other point you made, that, that it's rectifying historical injustices. Why was that not the key issue? Yeah. Uh, in so, play this is a, here. so this is a profound question, Francis, that you're asking. There are really two rationales for affirmative action, for taking race into account and trying to help uh, African-Americans, Hispanics, Native Americans have a fair shot, just like everybody else, uh, to get a good education and to go on in life. One rationale is we have a history of racial injustice that needs to be corrected, and it will take generations to do that. And every sector has to play its part. And higher education has done it in this way. The second rationale is not that history, but it's just good for everybody in a college setting, everybody in a learning setting, to be exposed to people of different backgrounds, uh, at different, um, whether it's geographic or international or any number of things that uh, we all know make education better and more exciting. Uh, so those two rationales are, are really present in affirmative action. Unfortunately, 
1978, the Supreme Court couldn't really settle on this issue and a major opinion by Justice Powell said, you cannot use the first rationale, racial justice, and you can, on the other hand, use the second rationale, educational diversity. So when Chief Justice Roberts says in the recent opinion, it you know, talking about racial diversity and the benefits for education, it's too vague, it's too uh, general, it's not concrete enough. The reason we're talking that way is because the Supreme Court said that's the only way you can talk about it. So if we uh, had been freer to talk about the full range of reasons, I think the case uh, is much more compelling. So Justice, Chief Justice Roberts' um, statement about that is, is not completely um, uh, straightforward. You can't take it uh, at face value. So that's the history so of the rationales. So you speak so compellingly, and I think we've all experienced it, of the benefits in education of meeting people who are not like our, our, ourselves. Um, do you anticipate that schools like Columbia, and of course it's a, it's a very elite and very selective school, will find workarounds to create diverse student bodies that may hinge on socioeconomic status or geography, as you just said? Right. So this is a very important dimension. Are there just other ways to achieve this wonderful and laudable right. goal of trying to have racial and ethnic diversity for educational benefits and for racial justice? And the answer is uh, the, the following. We have real life uh, experiments in this because the states of California and Michigan, independently of the Supreme Court, barred affirmative action. And in both cases, the flagship universities of Berkeley, UCLA, University of Michigan, their numbers of African-Americans and Hispanics, but especially African-Americans plummeted. And it has risen some, but it is not even close to what it was before. So we know that if you can't take race into account, as well-meaning as you are, and as devoted as you are to diversity, it is very hard to reach the levels of diversity that we think all through higher education we need in order to achieve these purposes of benefits of educational, the benefits of education and, and racial justice. A lot of people say, uh, don't worry, uh, just take more people from lower income, uh, the lower part of the socioeconomic um, uh, status of people, applicants, and you'll have both a better, more just uh, educational system, and you will also have racial diversity. There's been all kinds of scholarship that points out that that will not happen, uh, and that's because of demographics, the overwhelming number of people at every uh, sector of the economy uh, is white. So um, it, now, I mean, I do want to say universities, including Columbia, are always looking to try to attract uh, students from lower income backgrounds. We also agree that that's an important goal, just like we think it's an important goal to bring people in from all over the country. I mean, I came from California and Oregon, I'm sure that I was a beneficiary of a natural uh, policy that all universities have to bring people from different parts of the country together for educational benefits. So that's the answer, Francis. Uh, it's not an easy, uh, uh, it's not going to be easy. 
Uh, and in fact, our experiments in this, unfortunately, show a very sharp, more than 50% decline in numbers. So let me look just quickly at the other end of the scale. There's another phenomenon of, of legacy admissions. Um, right. That's the phenomenon of athletic fellow scholarships for students who are, who are coming into places that profess to be taking students based on academic achievement. How do you anticipate those policies will fare? And tell me a little bit more about how they work. Yes, so I think I think important to say there, there are really two major issues that we're facing in higher education in America. One is how to address racial inequality and having a fair and, and really a more just um, uh, opportunities for people to participate in higher education at all levels. So that's kind of one issue, racial justice, benefits of racial diversity. The other question is, uh, are there elements in uh, higher education and admissions independent of that problem or that set of issues that also should be corrected and may have an impact but may not have a major impact on the diversity, racial diversity issue? And I think the answer to uh, the, the second question is absolutely, we are in a pivotal moment. It is time to rethink um, admissions in higher education. We certainly have been doing that at Columbia for years and years and decades. I mean, I can talk about a wonderful program that exists at Columbia called General Studies, takes people from all different backgrounds, uh, but different ages and many military veterans. Columbia has more military veterans than all the other Ivy League schools combined. And we mix all of those together uh, with the regular undergraduates. It's an example of how just having a college experience with people who are 17 or 18 entering at that point in life and not trying to take advantage of talent at all stages uh, of life and backgrounds and having agendas of sort of uh, policies uh, that, that reshape how we think about uh, merit. In other words, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, we thought standardized test scores were a way to overcome the inequalities of wealth and connections. This would give everybody an opportunity to compete on a level playing field for admissions. I think most people now think in higher education that standardized test scores are a way of reinforcing privilege, not mm. counter privilege. Mm. And so that together with the fall of the rankings, uh, I think offers opportunities to rethink a lot of what uh, we do in admissions. You know, doing research for this program is the first time I'd come across your general studies programming. And it, it, I'd love to ask you just a little bit more about it because it's so interesting. Tell me about the, yeah. the careers. A lot of these are people who are coming as mature students. Tell me about the careers or the changes in directions you've seen them taken and what it's meant for, for them and also for the society they go back into. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is uh, it's, it's a unique program uh, in higher education where it was started after World War II, and it really was a way of offering regular admissions to Columbia's undergraduate college to people who had uh, served in World War II 
and now we're older and um, needed to come in through ways that not just as a junior or senior in high school. But then it's grown and developed and it's it's over the past couple of decades, it's really become integral to Columbia's uh, general admissions program for the college. And we take people who have um, struggled in life, maybe they were addicted and, and they didn't um, uh, really uh, have the capacities to show their talents when they were 20 or 25 or 30 and older. And they're now ready, uh, and we are delighted to have them. Military vets or another group. Then there's somebody who is a, a great ballet dancer, and they pursued that, and rather than go to college, that was their life. But now they want an undergraduate experience, and they're 35 years old, and they're brought in. And they all mix in the classes, the regular classes. I teach a First Amendment class to undergraduates every fall. 150 to 200 students, and there will be this mix of, of 18 to 22 year olds who are the regular sort of uh, life of college, and, and there are people who are, you know, 25 and 40 and, and even older who have had many, many different life experiences. And it is an unbelievable combination of people uh, to have in a classroom. And we're talking about this without mentioning the dollar question. And I think this is one yeah. of the most amazing things to people from overseas looking at American universities. How is right. it affordable? And isn't affordability one of the key issues that would level the playing field? Yes. So this is a very important question, obviously. Uh, I, I mean, you. Uh, so the question you're asking is, isn't the cost of getting uh, a degree today become itself a way of reinforcing privilege and of not helping the society use education uh, in order to create opportunities for everybody. Because part of America's greatness is in this um, uh, ideal that everybody can develop their talents as they will and, and take the benefits of that and not be inhibited and constrained by artificial and unfair things like wealth and the like. So this is a very complicated uh, question, cost and price of higher education. Just let me make a few points. One, at Columbia and at many other major selective universities, you have, it is need-blind admissions. I mean, students are considered and then they're admitted without regard to their capacity to uh, afford it. And if you make, I mean, it's a very practical uh, policy here. If your family makes $60,000 or less, you go to Columbia free, not only tuition, but uh, all the um, other costs. Students have no loans uh, going up uh, beyond, um, you know, that 60,000 number. So there are many students who come uh, and who are uh, unable to pay and uh, don't pay and the university supports it. And that's a tradition of financial aid. That's a really important part of alumni and others giving for, for this to make it fair. So it's extremely important to realize how much financial aid is actually given to students. I think the second thing to realize is that the cost of higher education um, have grown higher than the um, general inflation consumer price index 
but that's the wrong comparison. I mean, we now have opportunities to study, let's just take the brain, the mind, we never had before, but it requires very expensive machinery. It requires many people working in many labs. We have the capacities to understand things, but it costs a lot more than it did 50 years ago. So there's that. Um, I think there's also the decline in public legislative and federal government support for higher education. When I was president of the University of Michigan, I was there during just another series of years of decline in legislative support. And, and so the society really needs to make a, a decision about how much public investment is going to be needed to sustain our great universities. Obviously, universities could, like any organization, operate more efficiently, et cetera. We're always trying to do that. And I don't mean to minimize the burdens that uh, exist in, in many, for many people. But I do think that it's a much more complex problem than is generally uh, said or described to be in daily reports about it. Okay, I'm going to take you to another complex topic, and that's free speech. You're a First Amendment expert. Um, you've mentioned a couple of times already here. Um, free speech on campus has obviously been a huge, it's a, campus has been a hotbed recently. Um, should all voices be heard on campus? Uh, is there a line and how do you draw that line? How did you draw that line as a college president? Yeah, well, when you put it the way you did, should all voices be heard on college campuses? I mean, the answer, I know what you're talking about, and my basic answer is yes, uh, all voices should be heard. They're clearly, I mean, I teach the First Amendment, and the whole subject of the First Amendment is to talk about where are the exceptions, where are the limits of free speech, etc. The United States has the most free speech protective constitutional uh, jurisprudence of any country in the world, any democracy in the world, and any democracy or country in history. So we're an incredibly uh, protective uh, country. I think that should be and basically is the policy of universities about some will know, I mean, I, I was part of an invitation by the School of International Public Affairs at Columbia to invite Ahmadinejad when he was the president mm -hmm. of Iran, very, very controversial uh, person uh, for good reasons. And, and I, you know, defended that as the right and responsibility of a university to have speakers of all different backgrounds. I also think that the ideas have to be challenged and I did so in that case, but over and over and over again. My position has been uh, universities have to follow the First Amendment, even private universities, which are not required to, in giving full voice uh, to uh, voices of, of in, in the society and around. And, and so that's a major, uh, major policy. Tell me about the Chicago statement and why Columbia felt a need to be a signatory. Well, um, I mean, I think, I mean, I know the, I'm very close to Jeff Stone, who we've written together many books, mm -hmm. and uh, Jeff's on the law faculty at the University of Chicago Law School, and, and Jeff 
very wisely and wonderfully worked on the Chicago policy. I think it's absolutely right. I mean, Columbia has a similar uh, policy. And basically what this says is that universities will follow uh, the First Amendment in really uh, having all voices be able to be heard uh, in debates about public issues on campus. It is also important to know that universities are not just public forums in which we invite speakers in, but we're serious, dedicated, scholarly communities uh, that uh, engage in research. And that has its own code of critical thinking, uh, you know, using reason, civil discourse, uh, uh, giving attribution to ideas, not plagiarizing. I mean, there's a whole elaborate code of scholarly inquiry and not just anything goes there. I mean, so universities are a combination of public forums in which uh, pretty much anything should be uh, allowed to exist when people invite them in. But in the context of the scholarly inquiry in the classrooms, in the uh, research, uh, a different uh, code uh, applies. So I want to make that important distinction. But I, I'm, I'm listening and I'm thinking of the, the questions I'm going to get from European viewers in particular who see America's view on freedom of speech and the view you're expressing here as quite extreme. How do we yes. get to that? Do you have faith in the courts to maintain a level of civility and rationality in how we move ahead? Because it's not all about campuses, right? So this is a wonderful, wonderful question that is the core of what it is to think about freedom of speech. How far should we take it? I mean, should neo-Nazis be protected? Uh, should they be protected when they go into a suburb that is has many uh, survivors of the Holocaust? What about the Ku Klux Klan? And what about context in which their racist speech happens? And, and these have been the debates for 100 years. Uh, the Supreme Court really started deciding cases about free speech and free press only in 1919. So all of our jurisprudence is really only 100 years old. And in that time, uh, there have been many different thoughts and approaches to the question you're asking. How far should we go? European countries do not go as far as we do. And our choice has been really based, I think, on several factors. If you allow the government to start deciding that this speech was just too offensive, there's a ba major risk that that line will be used to silence speech that we really need to hear. So we need to take protections even to the outer bounds of highly offensive and really uh, erroneous ideas. I think a second idea is, you know, free speech is in a way like a wilderness. I mean, we. When you go out there in the society, you have to be able to confront even the worst of human ideas and thoughts. Just like when you go into a wilderness, you, you can't have the safety and protections uh, of a house and, and uh, all the things that you uh, ordinarily take uh, as part of a civilized life. So there's a lesson in tolerance, a lesson in, in we're going to be really a uh, open, robust, wide open society, and there be, will be a lot of um, 
uh, harms that we have to recognize, but we'll also have that kind of self, that kind of capacity for confronting ideas that will really serve us well all across our lives. And that's been the choice of the Supreme Court and I think of American universities and the society generally for the past uh, 50 years. Europe has taken a different path. We want not going to let people say outrageous things that offend people and create discord and, and uh, harms. That's a different course, again, a reasonable course, but not the one that America has taken. My goodness, there are many more questions I want to ask you, particularly about, you mentioned erroneous speech, but we've run out of time, which I'm, so we'll, we'll, we'll try to make another time to talk more. Professor Wonderful. Lee Bollinger, Professor, President Emeritus of Columbia University, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Francis, very much. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.